Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Dr. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, one of the world's leading polling and public affairs firms, to talk to us about some global trends from sentiments about Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine to COVID to democracy and security trends worldwide, as well as uh, how uh, the public is responding uh, to uh, four-decade-high inflation uh, and rising energy prices. Daryl, it is always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Vago. Uh, a pleasure indeed. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Daryl, it's only March, uh, and yet it's still, it feels like September. Uh, you know, uh, I remember in December, we were at the Halifax Forum where there were a lot of folks who were uh, talking about what was going to happen with Russia. Was it deterrable? Was it going to end up invading Ukraine? Alas, here we are. Um, leaders, uh, on the one hand, are trying to stand up for Ukraine without precipitating World War III. And indeed, individuals want their governments to do more to help Ukraine, but not get involved in a, in a wider war. I should point out that uh, you're up there in Canada. Uh, in Toronto, and Canada is home to the world's largest Ukrainian diaspora with some 1.5 million who settled in the, in the country of Ukrainian origin. What are the numbers telling us around the world about what public sentiment toward this conflict is? Public is obviously very concerned about it. I mean, uh, uh, when you get two of the world's superpowers, uh, and by uh, Russia, obviously, but also the, the NATO alliance, uh, putting that under the, the, the title of a superpower, squaring off in a, in, a, in a significant part of the world like Ukraine, um, obviously you get the, the public's attention. Uh, the reputation, obviously, of Russia is not doing particularly well through all of this. And I think you characterize the public mood in most of the NATO countries correctly, which is the idea that uh, people are appalled by what they're seeing. Uh, they're supportive of the Ukrainian administration. All of the initiatives that governments have been launching relative to uh, um, to uh, sanctions, generally supported by the public, uh, uh, things that are being done in terms of equipping uh, the Ukrainian uh, armed forces with the material ability to be able to fight back against the Russians, supported. Uh, but the minute that you get into anything that has to do with combat or uh, things like, for example, uh, engaging in uh, um, uh, establishing a no-fly zone the way that uh, uh, has been requested by the, uh, the president of Ukraine, that's when public support starts to, uh, uh, to get lesser. It starts to buckle. Uh, so people want to do everything short of actually getting involved in any sort of shooting war in Ukraine. Is there regionalized support, right? I mean, are there parts of uh, the world that are somewhat more receptive to Russia's uh, argument, right? I mean, China obviously has been doing an extraordinary public affairs campaign, right? Once Russia got bounced off of social media platforms, China has stepped in and been spreading a lot of Russian disinformation around the world. Do we see regionalized support for Russia or Ukraine? Not in our polling, we're not seeing it. Um, and but by the way, it's very difficult to get any accurate public opinion information out of China. So I don't know what the Chinese, the average Chinese person is, is thinking about this. But I, I would say that if uh, there are uh, uh, parts of the world in which there's support for Russia and 
what it's uh, decided to do in Ukraine. Uh, they're isolated uh, uh, spots rather than uh, any sort of a, you know, an alternative point of view uh, to the general consensus. They're, it's very isolated. What I'm curious about is that clearly sanctioning the world's 11th largest economy will have repercussions. Obviously, um, you know, there are concerns about food prices. Russia was also an energy provider. I mean, obviously, it is an extractive uh, economy. What do we see about people's willingness to pay more? Because it looks like China is going to be brought into this as well, right? President Biden and Xi Jinping have spoken. The president warned China, look, if you guys support Russia, we're going to have to apply secondary. We're going to have to sanction you as well, which looks like it's going to exacerbate the whole economic situation. And folks are already concerned about inflation. How much I mean, do you have any sense on how much people are willing to pay more, whether it's at the pump or at the cash register at the end of the day to help support? Ukraine and it ultimately? Well, what the survey results show is that people say that they're willing to uh, absorb a certain amount in order to support Ukraine. So if, if, uh, if the price of oil and gas is going to go up, the cost of energy is going to go up, they say, well, that's reasonable. We, we should be prepared to support it. Uh, that's in a philosophical sense. We'll see how long the support remains as we go uh, if this war goes on for longer and we see a greater escalation and a more permanent escalation in terms of uh, increased uh, uh, energy costs, but also, you know, generally, you know, the cost of food, also the cost of even borrowing money if there's, a, if there's a something that's related to that, that that gets longer term. So I would say going in, uh, what the survey results show uh, in most of the countries that we go to is that there's a willingness to support Ukraine uh, by um, uh, maybe absorbing some of the costs of uh, uh, um, uh, greater energy prices, like I said before, but uh, we don't know um, how long people will be able to sustain that. We'll, we'll see. And are, are, are sentiments changing as Russia has ramped up the brutality of its assault, right? I mean, in the beginning, there was strong support, but it seems to me just anecdotally talking to people that, that folks' views about the Russians have hardened and the cries to help Ukraine have grown louder uh, as, as Russia has ramped up the savagery of its attack. I mean, are you seeing that in any of your polling? Yeah, I think one of the two of the things that we're seeing is our, our people are paying fairly close attention to what's going on in Ukraine. So the, it's leading the news. And as a result, people are absorbing that information. Uh, but the second thing is the longer this goes on, the worse it actually gets for the Russians because people become more informed about what's actually happening on the ground there. So, you know, none of this is going well at the moment. Uh, from a public opinion perspective, outside of Russia, because very difficult to figure out what's going on in Russia, but outside of Russia, uh, it's, it's not going well. Uh, despite disinformation campaigns or alternate narratives or whatever, uh, the broad public consensus in most of the countries that you can do surveys in show that the public is not happy with what they're seeing. Um, let me let me just uh, and I want to uh, try to go to economic and COVID related questions uh, as well in a moment. But I'd ha I have to ask you this because you know folks make the argument. Well, you know, uh, Vago P Putin is polling uh, even better with the Russian people after this happened. And and I had family uh, in the Soviet Union. My family originally was from Soviet Armenia, and I would tell you that they wouldn't be particularly candid. I mean, what? I mean. How do you conduct polling in, in Russia? And when you have a dictator who's willing to arrest people sort of somewhat willy nilly, I mean, are people as open 
with their views. Oh, you know, I think Vladimir Putin stinks. Or is it more sort of like, oh, no, Vladimir Putin, he's okay in my book. Uh, it, it's, I would say it'd be very difficult to interpret results that you're getting out of Russia right now. Um, but, you know, they're not unique in that. Um, there are other countries in the world where it's difficult to get what I would say is an honest assessment of what the public's thinking. And, and the reason for that is, you know, you're a research company asking people their opinions or you're a research institute asking people their opinions. Uh, and um, one wonders if, if, if there is a, a fear of, of retribution with people being honest in terms of sharing their, their, their point of view. But there are ways of figuring out what's going on uh, in Russia. I mean, you can, you can look at what's happening in some instances in terms of social media, though a fair amount of that's been shut down. And there are things that are leaking out, but to get a systematic, unbiased, uh, representative view of what the average Russian is thinking right now, it's tough. Um, let me take you to something that might be a little bit easier, which is uh, uh, it views about uh, inflation as well as rising uh, energy prices, as, as is often the case, right? I mean, it's the, sort of the rocket and feather phenomenon when it comes to oil prices. They tend to surge very quickly up. Uh, and even though sort of um, bulk energy costs are dropping, uh, the gas, uh, the price at the pump tends to fall more like a feather. Uh, right. I mean, and obviously there are great economic reasons for that in part because, you know, folks want to ultimately make money. Um, what are what is the polling telling us about what sort of public sentiments are toward uh, inflation, rising uh, energy prices in general? They're incredibly worried. Um, so we're seeing in our polling that as COVID comes down as a uh, as a most important issue, this is on a global level. It's very rapidly being replaced by things that relate to the cost of living. Um, in some countries, uh, you know, housing is leading the chart. In other countries, it's, uh, you know, the, the cost of basic food products or whatever. Energy certainly um, is, is something that's important to, uh, uh, to most people. But we're seeing these things rapidly replace the pandemic as the most important issue uh, facing most countries and, and where we can actually do surveys. And, you know, the issue there is that some of it can be explained, obviously, by the war. Some of it can be explained by what's been going on with uh, the economy even before the war. But what it's done is it's dampened the optimism that people have about coming out of the pandemic. So when you take it back a year ago, and, you know, this time when we were starting to come out of things a year ago, uh, there was a, a, a fair sense of happiness about what, uh, um, what the next year was going to bring. People were optimistic. Uh, there was a general sense that things were going to get better. There was a, a bit of a halo on the uh, over top of the uh, emergence from um, uh, from the pandemic. We're not seeing that this time. We're seeing that the worry of the pandemic is being very rapidly uh, being replaced by worry about the economy. You mentioned sort of a, a broader uh, COVID trend, and I want to ask you about that. Um, we've all sort of been getting out uh, and about. Um, I just want to sort of give another shout out to the Halifax Forum in terms of the extraordinary job. And I know that you're one of the senior advisors there, um, did an extraordinary job of making feel every, everybody felt comfortable, everybody was masked, everybody was vaccinated, everybody was tested. Uh, and so that was a great uh, regime to have. Increasingly, folks are not wearing masks, they're getting out and about. Um, I've had several friends uh, who've, who have caught COVID. Uh, for some, it was as, uh, asymptomatic, uh, whereas for others, they were really badly affected uh, by it. And it looks like now we've got another wave that's bearing, bearing down on us. What does the polling tell you about whether or not folks are going to 
subject to mask mandates again, right? I mean, obviously we had demonstrations in Canada and, and certainly they've spread here south of the border as well. What, what does the polling tell us about how the population is going to respond when we get another wave regarding masks and vaccines and boosters, limits, et cetera? Well, a year ago, just to take you back to, uh, to the halcyon, that halcyon time, people were of, of the view that this was something that was going to go away. And now what we're seeing in our polling is people are believing increasingly that it's endemic. So uh, the endemic nature of the, um, of, the, uh, of the disease means that it's very difficult to maintain emergency readiness all the time or emergency type activities all the time. Uh, and the difficulty that uh, public authorities are having in this is that they put an awful lot of stake in the non-pharmaceutical interventions that, that were put in place. So for example, mask mandates, but also an awful lot of stake in vaccines. And essentially what the public was told is if you do these things, then we'll get our lives back to normal. We'll flatten the curve. If this rhetoric sounds familiar, we'll flatten the curve. We'll get our lives back to normal. And by the summertime, we'll all be going back to the ball game or whatever. And that's not what's happened. So the difficulty that um, public authorities are having here is that uh, people's uh, patience um, after two years is fairly short. Uh, and what was promised by public health authorities and by governments about what uh, uh, their appropriate behavior was going to lead to hasn't really come to fruition. So if we are really waiting for, the, for another wave to come on, that's not what's supposed to be happening at this period of time. So what it's done is it's undermined the ability of, of uh, public health authorities and others to get people to comply with these things because they're really wondering, you know, how long we can go on, we can go on like this. So I think what we're seeing right now with the protests is, is some of it is people who are never on side with, um, with anything that was, that was done in order to fight the disease. But what you're seeing is it, the frustration that's being expressed, that's starting to resonate with a broader segment of the population. By the way, even people who are compliant. So um, it's not that people necessarily say, I agree you know, with the anti-vax perspective, or I agree that we shouldn't be wearing masks. It's like, I'm doing all this stuff and it doesn't seem to be paying off. And I'm really wondering how much longer I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, uh, I want to uh, pull on that thread in just a second, but a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors uh, our coverage of Join All Domain Command and Control. You know, to, to that point, uh, Daryl, right? I mean, I know a lot of folks who fall into that category as well, right? I mean, they're, they were frustrated with Zoom school, uh, for example, and, um, you know, and, 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 and frustration that they were doing all the right things and a lot of people weren't doing the right things and sort of this sense of, you know, I'm vaccinated, um, I'm going to be in good shape. And honestly, if people are too dumb, that's now their problem, right? I'm going to live my life. I will have a mild form of this. And once I cared about whether somebody else would, would, would die, but actually now I don't really care if they're too dumb to not be vaccinated, right? I mean, are we seeing that sort of a sentiment sort of bubbling up as well in, in terms of sort of frustration? And what does it bode for people who are not vaccinated in an, another round? Or is that something that you sort of discount into the sort of the data set, if you will? Well, another question I think that goes along with this is what does vaccinated mean now? Hmm. So, you know, where I live, it's three shots. 
Right. Um, and I'm sure where you live, it's still probably two. Um, so we're even having debate, debates and disputes about that now. So uh, you combine all of these things together and what you run into is the sense that we had a year ago or even longer ago that we're kind of all in this together. And uh, you know, with Operation Warp Speed and we're all gonna get vaccinated and we're all gonna get our lives back on, on track, that's, that public consensus is, uh, has uh, become more fragile. And the longer this goes on, um, the more fragile it will continue, the fragility will continue to increase. It's, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's only natural. I mean, it's, it's, you can't keep people locked up for as long as we've, they've been kept locked up. They right. wanna get back to their lives. Uh, they're now um, you know, uh, looking at risk and you know, people are vaccinated in some instances. In other instances, they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading about people who have been vaccinated and they're still getting Omicron. So there's so many questions now that people are just, as I said before, that consensus is breaking down around all of these things. And that's why you're seeing a fair amount of what you're seeing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think uh, most people uh, would agree with, you know, your sentiment at this point of, of sort of, hey, look, let's try to get back to some sense of normalcy. Um, I would also point out that I think most people I know are on, on three shots, right? I mean, the two baseline original shots and then a booster. Uh, and obviously a lot of discussion about whether we get more, uh, more than that. I mean, again, I mean, my sense and a lot of other people, you know, the sense is, look, just get your shots. We'll all be better for it. At the end of the day, we'll minimize it. Uh, and I, I've, you know, on my program interviewed many people who, for example, stood in line in New York City when the smallpox vaccine came out, excuse me, the polio vaccine came out and everybody was so eager to get it that all of New York City was vaccinated within a month. Um, you know, th that sort of thing of, hey, look, let's all do our part and minimize this, because if you're vaccinated, the, the, the illness is a lot less bad uh, for, for you ultimately. Um, what are some of the other trends and issues that you're uh, looking at, right? I mean, because you guys are always sort of shaping questions, both for sort of breaking news events, but then also over the strategic long term. What are some of the other trends that you're keeping an eye on? Well, I look at it relative to the hierarchy of needs. <laughs> so yeah, seriously. Uh, and what's happening? Daryl and Maslow's hierarchy. Go ahead. Yes, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and uh, prior to the pandemic, I would say um, what you were seeing in most developed countries was were issues that were in the top part of the hierarchy being uh, higher in terms of the public's level of focus or clearer in the, in the, in the public's uh, uh, focus. So things, for example, like climate. So it was all about, and just for listeners, you know, the, the top of the hierarchy of needs is about actualization, making the world a better place, making myself a better person and making the world a better place. Uh, what's happened over the space of the last two years is the gaze has moved, the focus has moved from the top closer to the bottom which is more about self-preservation survival. And that's what you're seeing in terms of the public mood, kind of that esoteric conversation, or, and, and by the way, some of it quite existential. I mean, when you're talking about the climate, obviously people are very concerned about that, but it was about making the world a better place for the longer term. Now what's happened is, is our gaze has dropped on the hierarchy of needs 
our perspective has become much more short, short term and more urgent and more personally focused. So we're not necessarily as worried about what's going on in the world as we're worried these days increasingly about what's going on in my community and what's happening in my family and what's in fact happening within my own four walls. So this, this applies to the pandemic, but increasingly it applies to everything related to the economy. And uh, people are really very concerned about their ability to just get by these days. You know, in a, in a sense, um, right? I mean, folks, uh, friends I talk to on Wall Street, for example, ask this question all the time. They're like, wow, so people have a very negative sentiment, even though job creation is at a high, um, even though wages are higher than they've been. Indeed, during the pandemic, a lot of people did benefit uh, from all manner of, of government assistance programs, right? I mean, at, at one point, folks were being paid uh, effectively or supported uh, to stay home. Uh, and that then caused employment challenges because folks were like, hey, I'm getting paid more money not to work uh, than I was getting paid to work, uh, for example. Do, do we see any folks in their polling to sort of say like, look, you know, in, in the end, it, it all comes out. I was assisted uh, but things are more expensive now, in part because there's more money chasing fewer goods, right? Is there is any of that reflected uh, in 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 the polling that that folks actually did end up benefiting from, and are probably even if they're spending more money on things, still ahead of the power curve? No, no, especially in people among people who are the most precarious in our economy. So people who are younger, less affluent. Uh, are the people who are really, really um, uh, very uh, concerned about what's happening in, to the future economy. Uh, I think if you're older and you're a homeowner and you're somebody who uh, has a, a, either a, a good pension or you've done a good job saving for your retirement, you're probably feeling a bit better. But uh, the much larger part of the population is really feeling on edge. So even though all that money was spent, they're not necessarily feeling like they were saved. In fact, the concern about the economy today is greater than it was back, uh, back a year ago. So um, no, it, it, none of that fueled any sense of confidence. Uh, no uh, good deed goes uh, unpunished at the end of the day, uh, Daryl. Uh, what are some other trends uh, you're uh, paying attention to? Uh, what we're also paying attention to is people's things, for example, like consumer activities. Are people uh, really you know, willing to get back into traveling? How long are they going to take to re-engage uh, with various activities from the previous life? And, and uh, I, th I think you know, that there's a bit of confusion sometimes when we talk about these things because they look at, um, you know, we're all in or we're all out. You know, it's like a light switch. We turn it off, turn, turn the light on, and everybody comes back and turn the light off and uh, everybody stays home. Uh, but the truth is the public really divides up uh, among the people who are more adventurous and ready to go now, all the way through to people who are completely terrified and don't even really want to get out of their houses anymore. Uh, so uh, uh, there's a, a various gradients in terms of people's willingness to re-engage and, and trying to uh, calibrate what that looks like. Um, in terms of the public is one of the things that we're looking at really closely. So we know that, for example, there's about 20% of the population in just about any country. If you turn the light on, they're ready to go out and do whatever right now. And then there's another 20% who are prepared to, prepared to come on, uh, provided that the first 20% don't get sick. And then, uh, you know, it, you sort of gradually get into it. But even, 
even among the categories remaining after that, you know, there's people, uh, if they, they lack the means to, to re-engage because of what we've been talking about relative to the economy, they'd like to go back on a vacation, but they can't because they can't afford it. Uh, then there's another group that, uh, you know, they're kind of older, more affluent. Some of the people that we we're talking about before, you know, they're, they're perfectly happy staying at home and their, and their life's going just fine. So they're okay. They'll re-engage when they, uh, uh, when, when they feel the need, they don't feel particularly moved to do it right now. And then there's the last group, as I said before, you know, 15, 20%, just about anywhere you go. Uh, and they're terrified and they're going to have a really hard time getting back re-engaged. Another issue that goes along with that and very similar to this is how people are going to re-engage with work. Are we going to be going back to the office? One of the things that we've seen that could be an interesting, enduring aspect to this is that is a, a pretty strong desire between about 30, 40% of people who previously worked in offices or worked on sites um, uh, in person in various places, uh, saying that uh, they really would like a hybrid type of work model. You work part of the, work, the week uh, from home and you work part of the week back in the office or whatever it was that you were doing before. Uh, the implications of that for everything from downtown planning to transportation to housing, uh, in, you know, particularly in urban centers are quite profound. I mean, if even in Washington, D.C., where you are, Vago, imagine, let, let's take the midpoint number, 25% of the, uh, the people working in downtown Washington decide that they're going to stay home one day a week. Imagine the economic implications for everything in downtown Washington. So it doesn't have to be everybody doing one thing or everybody doing another thing. Even a significant segment of the population, as few as a quarter, doing something maybe one day less a week, the implications are profound. So trying to calibrate that is something else that we're taking a look at. Uh, and, and let me ask you one last question, because it, it was funny. Um, I, was, I was just about to ask you that because you are the CEO of a, of a global uh, organization that can both operate in a distributed fashion and yet uh, benefits from the collaboration of having people uh, in a space or, or being in regular contact, right? I mean, as we've discussed, the challenge is, um, more extreme if you're onboarding new people as opposed to having a group who's familiar with, with uh, one another and already works well together. Um, do you have any sense on how long this rebound or return, you know, like, should we be thinking of this as a, as a six-month window, a two-year window, you know, or, or as you said, are things just going to be permanently different going forward, right? Yeah, there, I think that, you know, that there's, uh, there's desire among people who are employees for some sort of an alternative working relationship. And then there's the need uh, of organizations to be able to deal with all those issues that you just mentioned, like everything from onboarding through to collaborative working to whatever, in which you, you need to get people together. So somewhere in between there is going to be um, what the, the, new, uh, the, the new standard is going to be, but we haven't worked it out yet, which, is, which makes it so interesting to do research on, because this is something that's being formed as you and I are speaking today. It's a brand new thing, hybrid work. What is that really going to look like? There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of hot takes, but nobody really knows three years from now, if we're having this conversation, what we're talking about, what it will mean. I have a suspicion um, that probably what we're going to see is we're not going to receive, see permanently a complete return to work like we, we had before and more flexibility is going to become uh, required, particularly from young workers who are gonna have more choice. 
because they'll be so in demand. But uh, I, I do think that if there's one going to be one enduring aspect of um, of what's been happening with this pandemic, it's it's going to be something that relates to how we interact in the workplace. Daryl, it is always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, already look forward to having you uh, back on uh, again soon. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Fago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.